Thank you, Lizzie. It's a powerful message of God's power and beauty and wonder. Well, we've been in a series exploring the beauty and wonder of the kingdom of heaven, and we've been looking at it through the gospel of Matthew. And Jesus said in a simple, short parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure discovered in a, in a field. And something is so valuable and so exciting that the man who found it, he sold everything that he had and he went and, and, he, went and he bought the field. Or it's like a, a pearl merchant who found one of such value that when he discovered it, he sold everything that he had so that he could purchase this pearl of great price. So Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is more valuable and more exciting than anything we own or anything else that we've experienced. And he's saying that it's worth everything that we have because it's more than we could ever hope for. We've also been talking about the truth that the kingdom of heaven is the now and the not yet. It is both something that we experience in part today and it's also something that we experience in its fullness in the eternal life to come. And so today we are teaching on another aspect of the kingdom. And that's what's interesting as you go through a gospel and you read through the text and you uh, need to honor the texts that are there, even the difficult ones that are there to preach. And so today we're going to look at a number of texts on this theme of judgment, which we also see as part of the kingdom. Recognizing that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the perfect judge with grace and truth. Now, judgment is a concept that we see throughout Scripture that is closely related to the concept of God's justice. As in all of God's relationships, he acts morally and justly. And we as his creation are morally structured so that we might respond positively to God's righteous demands on our lives. God has created a world of truth and order. He's called us to live into it. He's called us to respond to it in the ways that he's designed. And in doing so, we experience his kingdom. And so simply put, judgment is the divine response to human activity. In terms of how we respond to Jesus' work on the cross, how we live in relationship to others. And so as humans created in, in God's image, we also are created to make judgments. We make assessments. We do so all the time. It's part of being an image bearer of Christ. Sometimes people say, well, don't judge. It's not good to judge. No judgment. But we make judgments all the time. We're continually assessing things, discerning things. When you buy a car, you make judgments. When you discipline a child, when you choose a career, when you order lunch, when you respond to a coworker, when you make decisions about Jesus. I mean, every day, big and small, we make judgments. Many people misjudged what the kingdom was all about. From the religious leaders to the disciples to the crowds, they missed it. And Jesus points that out so often in the Gospel of Matthew, how they missed it. They misjudged the kingdom, just as we so often do as well. And so we are called to make moral judgment, judgments as believers with each other. It's part of actually how we disciple one another, to speak the truth in love. And we think that we want a world free of all judgment, but that would be chaos, Judgment that is filled with God's truth and grace is a gift that allows us to experience the kingdom. So today I want to look at four texts in Matthew's gospel that look at this topic of judgment. And there are more in Matthew, but I want to look at these four. These are key texts that stand out in Matthew on this topic. And it gives us a sense of a bigger picture of what matters to God. The first one is John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. 
Uh, then we'll look at Jesus' teaching on the posture of our judgment in Matthew chapter 7, and then God's eternal judgment uh, for unbelief in Matthew 11, and then how Jesus will also judge our deeds and our actions towards others in Matthew 25. So let's start in Matthew 3. I encourage you to turn there. And we've been here before. I, I just want to touch on some things, but it's on this theme of judgment. John the Baptist, his message was simple. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Called people to repent of their sins. When they did, he baptized them. And those who refused to recognize and repent of their sins would experience God's judgment. While those who heeded his message and produced fruit in keeping with repentance would avoid the wrath of, wrath of God. And it says in there, and John says, Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. But even on this theme of judgment, even what John is saying, it's, it's not a message of doom and gloom. It's actually an invitation to life, of real change. To those who respond to the power of the Holy Spirit, he definitely challenged the Pharisees and the prideful Jewish religious leaders as we read in verse 7 to 10. And here's what John says. He says, but when, he, or, but, but when Matthew records this, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him, uh, to watch him baptize, he denounced them. He says, you brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, well, we're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. And even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. John's word of God's judgment here was to people who felt that their salvation came from being Jewish, from being part of the tribe of Israel. And he dismissed that their ethnic identity could save them. And he dismissed this idea that your religious pedigree could save you, that it guaranteed participation in the kingdom of heaven. And even as I read that, it causes me to pause and take notice as a professional Christian who is paid to pray, preach, and live out my faith. But John says, pedigree, ethnicity, doesn't matter. That salvation was found in the repentance of sin for all people. And so John's message was really clear. He's like, get ready, Israel. Watch out, world. You need to pay attention because the kingdom of heaven is here. And judgment is a part of that. And then we see when Jesus began his ministry, he picked up this very same theme, and he started the very same way, and it says in Matthew 4, from then on Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. So our second look at scripture is looking at the posture of our judgment. And I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. And we again spoke on this earlier in the series, but here Jesus is teaching about what is the posture that we have as we judge, as we make assessments as we interact in this human horizontal judgment with each other. And in order for our judgment to reflect both truth and grace of Jesus, we need to do so in a certain way. And so we read, Jesus says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, hey, let me help get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with a speck in your friend's eye. 
What Jesus isn't saying, and what people often attribute to, is that we aren't to make any moral discernments whatsoever. But what Jesus is actually saying is that we just need to change our posture first, because it will come back to you. And so that we actually need each other in order to clearly be healthy disciples of Jesus in community. Moral discernment is good and necessary in our kingdom culture as it shows genuine love and friendship. As true disciples seek to help each other and disciple one another. But he's saying, first of all, you have to deal with your own plank eye, that own thing in your eye that is actually causing you the inability to see clearly. You see, God cares what humans are doing and how we live and the choices that we make. And so we need to differentiate between moral discernment from personal condemnation, which is what Jesus is speaking here. So we shouldn't stand in the posture of condemning somebody and saying, you are condemned by God, and that's what Jesus is saying. Don't judge in that way. Don't sit in that kind of judgment, but rather have discerning truth with mercy and grace. So Jesus is saying, before you help your friend with that speck, look inward first. Own some of your own stuff. Then you'll have the humility and love to truly help your friend. So Jesus is calling us to a posture of humility and self-judgment first, because that leads to our own repentance, which leads to the right posture in, other, in ways to treat others with mercy. This then creates a culture not of condemnation, but a culture of humility and love, even when we disagree and when we need to make judgments in order to help others. Well, let's look at the third picture that we'll touch on today in Matthew chapter 11. We'll see judgment related to Gentile unbelief and unrepentance and some harsh words that Jesus shares. So this is all about the belief or unbelief of Jesus' identity and his message and also our response to it. When Jesus is at best reduced to simply a good moral teacher or a good person or at worst a false prophet. So Matthew 11, verse 20 to 24 it says, then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. And he says, what sorrow awaits you, Chorazan and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did, uh, the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on judgment day than you. And you people of Capernaum, Will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on judgment day than you. Like, ouch. Like, that is harsh. But it's part of the kingdom reality. So he's saying Chorazan and Bethsaida, they, they rejected the gospel message. These towns that saw the power of the kingdom through the miracles of Jesus, but they didn't believe Jesus, nor did they repent of their sins. And what Jesus is saying is that even the wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon, if they would have seen what the other cities saw, they would have repented. They would have been in sackcloth. They would have been repenting, and they would have just given their lives over to Jesus. And those cities of Tyre and Sidon, they were like the proverbial pagan people, Baal worship. Arrogant pride in their power and wealth. I mean, they weren't, just bad, they weren't just pagans, but they were really bad pagans, is what he's saying. And Jesus is saying they would have repented of their unbelief. So here we see Jesus calling judgment for unbelief. 
And then this contrast is heightened when Jesus refers to Capernaum, when this was his home turf. This was the headquarters of his Galilean ministry. They didn't get it or believe or repent. And he says Sodom, which was the proverbial city of sin throughout Scripture in the Old Testament. Even Sodom would have repented, Capernaum, had they been able to see what, what you saw. And they would have been better off than you. Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead or Hades. So because of their unbelief and who Jesus was and his miracles and their lack of seeing their own sin and their need for a savior, there was judgment. And so this is true for us Gentiles as well. And we come to those texts that we love in Romans where Paul says in 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we are called to confession We are called to recognize our sin. We are called to repent. So we see that to confess and believe is critical to experience the kingdom. But then you ask the question, is that the sum of the gospel, is just to confess our sins and believe, that we have mental assent of right thinking of Jesus and right thinking about what he taught? Is it just this vertical truth relationship between me and God, or is there more? What about the horizontal? What about our actions? And that brings us to the last one in Matthew chapter 25. I encourage you to turn there. But before we read just some of that section of Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, let me just go back to Matthew 7, verse 21, where Jesus said, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. So here we see again, just as we will in this text, what Jesus talked about earlier that our actions matter. How we live matters. Doing the will of the Father matters. That our faith is to be a holistic faith. Not just mental assent. Not just repentance. Not just right thinking about what we believe. But a faith that is lived out with actions that give evidence to the faith that we have. And so we read in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, this scene of judgment that Jesus teaches on. And he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. And all the angels will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then these righteous ones who've been so affirmed, it's almost like they're caught off guard. And they reply, Lord, when? When? When when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters... You are doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And they too are surprised. And they reply, Lord, when? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of 
these, my brothers and sisters. You're refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So as I read this text and you look at the other passages of judgment, it's interesting how there's nothing here about confess your sins and believe, about make sure you have the right theology. No, it says there's eternal judgment for those who don't feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and imprison. That shows that the horizontal actions of mercy, grace, and justice really matter to Jesus. In fact, it has eternal consequences. It says that those who don't live out their faith in this horizontal way, who ignore the cries of the hungry, the thirsty, the needy, are condemned to eternal punishment. Serious stuff. You know, for me, as I think about my calling and some of the ways that God has wired me, sometimes I've, I've said part of my calling is what I call the ministry of ditches. I uh, find myself tending to pull people in from the extremes on one side or another. And I'm often found in that middle setting. And here's one example where we need to avoid the extremes as well. I've heard some people say recently things like, you know, the social gospel has no place in the church. And I get it. It's a trigger word that has come to mean all kinds of extremes and slippery slopes that lead us away from Jesus. And so it's become a problematic phrase for sure. And I would agree that the social gospel devoid of Jesus is no gospel at all. But in this text in Matthew 25 and in so many other texts, it also tells me that a gospel of Jesus devoid of a life of mercy and justice is also no gospel at all. In James 2.17, he says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. And if you go back to how Jesus began his ministry and how he pronounced his, the kingdom objectives that he had when he began in Luke, it says, right after the temptation of Jesus in the desert, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And you know what? Throughout Jesus' whole ministry, he did this both in the spiritual sense and the physical. So these passages in Matthew help us to see that the Gospel of salvation and what it means in our eternal judgment has both the vertical and the horizontal. They matter in the kingdom of God. They matter for us to experience the kingdom of God. And as we think about the kingdom of God and judgment and what the gospel really means, we need more of a holistic gospel that captures what Jesus is saying to us in all these texts and more in Matthew. Commentator Rodney Reeves, he said this quote, and I would invite the worship team up at this time. He says, True prophets preach repentance in the reign of God. True prophets help us confess our sins. True prophets call people to the desert to meet God. True prophets are satisfied with nothing less than the good deeds of justice. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the promise and the possibility of your kingdom. Lord, help us to not miss it. Help us not to misjudge it. Help us to see it more accurately, more in its fullness. Lord, thank you that you are a judge of truth and grace. And Lord, in our judgments 
as we are with others, help us not to condemn others, but to have a posture of truth and grace so that we can disciple and encourage one another toward holiness and truth. Help us, Lord, to reconcile the sin and the rebelliousness in our own hearts, Lord, and then our need for a Savior. And so, Lord, today we come before you repentant and in need of your grace. Help us to be a people that enter into the complexity and the pain and the mess of humanity, serving others who are hurting and in need of mercy, compassion, truth, and grace of Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to both serve others and proclaim the gospel well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.